On this week's podcast, we talk to author McCracken Poston about his book, The Zenith Man, Death, Love, and Redemption in a Georgia Courtroom. This book tells the story of Alvin and Virginia Ridley, their peculiar yet loving marriage, Virginia's death, and Alvin's subsequent arrest on murder charges. Poston takes us through the trial with a compassionate clarity, guiding the reader through Alvin's behaviors, a community's bias, and a lawyer's discovery of himself. This is just one more question. I'm good. I'm excited. Uh, this is just one more question. Uh, this is our very first uh, episode, our very first interview, our very first guest. And I couldn't be more excited because it's we a friend. Know him. <laughs> we both know him. It's a friend. And uh, we'd like to welcome into the studio McCracken Poston. McCracken, how are you? Oh, I'm great. And I and this is my first podcast <laughs> as uh with what I'm doing now. So uh, I'm very excited to be here. That's fantastic. You know, our uh, podcast has two goals. One is to introduce the podcast world to an author and also the story that you told or are telling it through your book. And you have a new book out once you introduce our audience to your new book. Well, thank you. On uh, February 20th, uh, it launches, but of course, it's available for pre order now on uh, all book uh, sellers' sites. Uh, but it's called Zenith Man Death, Love, and Redemption in a Georgia Courtroom. Uh, in a little while, I'll explain why the title had to be so long. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, a full disclosure to the audience. I've read the book, and uh, we'll talk about that. So, just at the beginning, it's fantastic. It is. Is a great book, and I'm an avid reader, and I just thought it was wonderful. Thank I you. really did, and um, and we know you as Ken. We've we've known you for years. We know you as Ken, but the, I've always been interested in McCracken as the name. Give us the origin of that, if you could. Well, my father was born in rural Middle Tennessee in 1923, and uh, he was so small. Um, my grandmother and the the ladies helping her put him in a box and put him on a lit wood stove to keep him warm. <laughs> uh, the doctor came by later and just shook his head and said, he's too small. He probably won't make it through the night. Oh my. So my grandmother who named her other sons, Doug, John and Cal <laughs> named him McCracken <laughs> King Poston. And she effectively gave honorary names her maiden name, McCracken, and I think her mother-in-law's maiden name, King, hmm. to honor those families with this child that wasn't going to live but a day. He lived. He lived. <laughs> I'm the last of his six children and only son. Wow. And so uh, I got the name. This is your first book. Absolutely. You've been an attorney for how long? 38 years. Yeah. I've known you for a long time 
from my career in the FBI. Alex has known you for a long time with her career. Almost 20 years. Yeah, from the DA's office as an attorney. will be 20 years when this airs. And and so we've known you for a long time. Tell me, what made you want to write a book? Well, first, let me tell you that I have a lot of respect for both of you. Thank you. Your professionalism in your careers has been uh, just incredible. And you and I had to work on a case that involved some professionalism one time. Yeah, yeah. And and I just always felt confident and uh, and very happy to know you both. Thank you. Um, well, what motivated me to write this book? Uh, Maya Angelou uh, has a quote that just hit me in the heart. And that quote is, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside of you. And that's how I felt for 25 years after... Uh, January 15th of 1999. Uh, This is a story that had to be told. Alvin and I left the courthouse on the front steps, which is a very special place to me, the front steps of the Catoosa County Courthouse. I said, I introduced Alvin Ridley, a free man and an innocent man, and a man who wants to restore his name. And so that was a, a sub goal of mine is let's let's make sure Alvin is not just deemed that guy that got away with something. Yeah. Uh we, I wanted him deemed as the guy who was innocent. Yeah. And was innocent throughout in a very unusual story that I think uh captivates the mind. Yeah. I met a woman named Bonnie Hearn Hill in California. And I approached her with, you know, co-write this with me and I gave her the material of my first fits and starts and she gave me the greatest gift anybody has ever given me she said you can write and I'd never been told that before yeah but one of the other things that Bonnie told me she said you know I think in the past you're not telling how this affected you you're just telling the story, just like a somebody just observer. Yeah. But this story is coming from you. This story, you need to tell how this story made you feel, how this process made you feel of going through this, this what what I called an ordeal then and now <laughs> of representing Alvin Ridley, yeah. and um, and that's what made the difference. Yeah. From reading the book, Alvin is. Accused of killing his wife, Virginia. And she has some issues as well. Tell us about Virginia. Well, Alvin met Virginia during leave uh, of his Army years. He served for two years in the U.S. Army, was drafted, uh, served uh, Fort Jackson in South Carolina for training, but did his regular stint at Fort Benning in Georgia. So Alvin would, you know, close enough to come home a good bit. Uh, he tells a great story. He was already working on electronics and televisions. Right. He tells a great story about how his sergeant wanted his, him to fix his TV. So he got a three day pass when he got to Ringgold. He told his sergeant, Oh, I have to order a part. It's going to be six more days. <laughs> so Alvin turned it into a nine-day pass. <laughs> and I, I don't know if this was the leave, but in one of these leaves, he met uh, young Virginia Hickey, who 
as a child from age nine had severe epilepsy. Mm. Uh, she also struggled with the medications for epilepsy, uh, sometimes having a reaction to the medications. So in a weird way, they both were somewhat outcasts right. socially. Although everybody, uh, someone posted on on one of the social media sites today that they went to school with her and she was a very sweet young girl. And uh, she was 18 uh, when they married. Uh, there's a lot of rumors out that, that she, she was, was a lot younger, but, you know, that the one known signature I have of Virginia Ridley's that is known as an official signature is on the marriage license. So, uh, no, she was 18. They married in Ringgold, Georgia, or got their license three weeks after Dolly Parton and Carl Dean got theirs <laughs> in Ringgold. Yeah. 1966. Um, and then things went a little awry. Um, I think, and there's nothing wrong with this, but, uh, Virginia's family was extremely religious, uh, very much, uh, anti-alcohol. Um, they raided the young couple's apartment looking for beer. Right. I remember reading that in the book. That was the last straw. Yeah. And ultimately, uh, Alvin and Virginia kind of went underground and, and another problem happened was the pest uh, exterminator right. came in on her in a, in a delicate moment uh, in the house without warning and then proceeded to try to get a date from her. Right. And so they really went under at that point and they tried to anticipate when they thought services were going to be done to their apartment and, Virginia would leave for days just to avoid that situation. Well, obviously her family had something to do with this, but they got eviction notices from public housing. Yeah, from public housing. The angle was that you aren't, you don't qualify for this apartment anymore because we don't think your wife is living there. And ultimately, it it ended up in a jury trial. Only Alvin could make an eviction a jury trial. <laughs> oh, seriously. Uh, before Judge Paul Painter, who I knew at the beginning of my career. So it was kind of neat because his son is in Savannah and his son is, or grandson, I think, is eagerly anticipating this book because sure. it mentions his, his grandfather. Yeah. And... Um, Ultimately, Judge Painter, who was a no-nonsense kind of guy, uh, it went round and round and round and round. And finally, he goes, stop. Mr. Ridley, have your wife brought here. And Alvin's father went and got Virginia. They showed up in court. I found a witness. I mean, I found a juror in that case that I knew. Really? And I reached out to her, and she said, yeah, that was. I remember that. And this is over two decades later she said i remember that and then he the judge asked that this he get this young woman and she came in and they went back into chambers and the only people allowed back in chambers other than the judge were virginia alvin's father and both of virginia's parents 
Nobody's alive that knows what was said. But Virginia's parents stopped trying to flush her out right. after that. Yeah. And so at some point, she dies. Yeah, October 4th, 1997. Now, this is 27 years after her last public appearance wow. that we know of in the Catoosa County Courthouse. And Alvin goes and makes this now uh, infamous 911 call where he has a very flat vocal effect. And that was brought up in the trial. Doesn't sound like a guy that just lost his wife. And, of course, only a couple of years ago did I learn why he has that flat vocal effect. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But it, it just seemed that everything was off kilter to investigators. I don't think anybody was ill-motivated in this case. I, I just think that we didn't know that Alvin was autistic. We didn't know anything much about autism 25 years ago. It was discussed with children. The fact that it's a spectrum was just being developed 25 years ago. But they were only talking about it about school children, and everybody was obsessed with what's causing this. And in reality, we've had aust- autistic people forever. Sure. Yeah. And some of our greatest minds have been Asperger's autistic. Uh, Alvin himself is really smart. He, he, he doesn't give that impression all the time in a conventional way or a neurotypical way, as we'd say in the modern parlance. But he is very smart. Um, they say with an autistic mind that it is not clouded by the things that cloud our minds. It's a laser focus. Alvin was a crackerjack TV repairman in the age of picture tubes. Right. That changed about the time that Alvin lost his business. Solid state circuitry, as Alvin says, you just throw it away. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think the neurotypical really resonated when I was reading it. Because I have, you met my son. Yes. And um, he's the oldest of wonderful four. Wonderful young man. Autistic. But reading that when, yeah, he didn't, he called 911. Yeah. Flat. He went straight past what the EM, you know, the emergency kept going because he was looking for a phone. Yeah. I mean, is that typical of well, Alvin? Well, there was also the fact that Alvin had grudges, <laughs> celebrated grudges. Celebrated. And a lot of his lifelong grudges were against some little boys that later grew up to be law enforcement, law enforcement. officers. Yeah. And but but they were just being boys. Yeah. And 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 I think back to growing up in Graysville and we had some characters. <laughs> and if you had a little sass as a kid, you would just weigh right in there and, you know, with the character. And uh and you know, it really it it made me somewhat sympathetic for the boys um, who were, you know, razzing him back sure. and forth. Yeah. But Alvin took it so seriously. Virginia wrote about it, about those boys. Yeah. And and uh, one of the, the, the 
one of her documents that we've used at trial, she's talked about the boys, just an encounter they had uh, where one of them mentions Alvin was riding a bicycle and Alvin uh, blurts out, it's, yeah, it's a damn shame your government made this happen or something, and then they just get into it again. <laughs> so uh, it's it's uh, it, it's really interesting how Alvin processes things. So Virginia dies. Alvin calls nine one one. Oh, oh, and he he goes by the fire department. Yeah, because one of those boys grew up to be the chi- uh, fire chief. Oh. oh, I didn't know. And his arresting officer. One of them grew up to be his arresting officer with the sheriff's department. Got it. That makes even more sense. He, he calls nine one one. As you said, he has a flat effect on his voice, but he he says something in in that phone call that. At, at, was the end, at, at the end, at the end, he that said, "Please hurry, please hurry." But none of the news broadcasts of the nine one one tape ever included that. Right, right. So they come, they do an investigation, and what and what do they find? Well, things the wheels fall off pretty quickly, yeah. Because Alvin, to the observers, his emotions are not the way a person who just lost his wife should be. There were testimony after testimony about how he just didn't seem to be that upset. And then he would be crying and it just, it was out of sync. They were thinking and saying again, now we know traits of autism. And looking back at with a neurodivergent eye, you can see a lot of that. And, and really my call to action in this book, is to please try to include this on our state psychological tests because it can explain so much. It it can explain apparent evasiveness. Mm -hmm. It can explain, you know, one of the, when Alvin did testify against my will, um, he was doing great. And I completely forgot. I've got this guy's so literal. I completely forgot it. And so I made the mistake of saying, I wanted to hit a home run at the end. And I said, Alvin, what have you lost? I wanted him to say, my best friend, the love of my life. He goes, oh, I think the funeral bill, yeah. <laughs> which which the DA ran with in his closing. So, so Virginia dies. There's an investigation. And they charge Alvin with murder. Eight months later. Yeah. And what was it, the central piece of evidence that the state had? that this was a murder the uh, when someone dies of asphyxiation by whatever means a lot of times the blood leaving the head is constricted meanwhile the excitement or just the regular pumping of the heart keeps on pumping blood into the head which causes these things called petechial hemorrhaging, usually in the soft tissues, the eyes, the mouth, and and even in other parts of the body, uh, you know, the armpits and and places, uh, will these appear? Well, people who have epilepsy get them all the time during seizures. Mm -hmm. The state of Georgia's position was, Oh, no, these could only happen if he asphyxiated her mm. manually. Right. And that didn't make any sense to me. And so 
But fortunately, and I, I don't want to frighten anybody that's got a friend with epilepsy, but epilepsy is very well controlled with medications. Right. Uh, but we, we know that Virginia had a history of having reactions to medications. And we know, thanks to her uh, journals, that in September of 1977, God told her to stop taking her medicine. And by all indications, she did. And so she lived for 20 years non-medicated, which I think set her up to die of epilepsy on a condition called SUDEP or sudden death in epilepsy. And Alvin would call these spells in, in your book. That's he would what he call them spells. If, if pressed, he would say, well, she's epileptic. Yeah. Epileptic. And I right. uh, right. thought, well, that, that, that was clear. Yeah. Uh, but um, And you knew Alvin. I knew Alvin from an early age. Well, again, my sister went to school with him, but I was very young when they were in school together. I, I was born their senior year. Yeah. And so, but my father did business with him. My father was notoriously a penny pincher. <laughs> and if he could find somebody, he did not care anything. He didn't care what their building looked like. If he could find a deal, he was going to get that deal. And um, my father bought at least one Zenith color television from Alvin in the 60s. Uh, my sisters and I proceeded to wear the tuner knob completely off. <laughs> uh, had a set of channel lock pliers. Ten, yes. Uh, just working yeah. just fine yes. on the crescent pin. And uh, I think my mother just waved Alvin in. They were always working in a garden, and it was a Saturday afternoon, and I was watching live wrestling, <laughs> Harry Thornton live wrestling. And my grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Alvin appears in the living room, and he kind of took me back, you know, <laughs> who is this? And then I realized, oh, that's the TV guy. And Alvin proceeds to give me a lecture about how to tune a TV knob. And uh, it seemed to go on forever. But then we started talking about wrestling. I only remembered this conversation because I was about 13. I only remember this conversation when Alvin and I had the same conversation Again. in 1998 when he's telling me about meeting Andre the Giant. Yeah. And I thought, we've had this conversation before. <laughs> he met Andre the Giant in the back of Memorial Auditorium. Yeah. There was a couple in Ringgold that hired Alvin to take them to wrestling. And Alvin hung out in the back and met and spoke to Andre the giant. He said he eats a loaf of bread and 13 eggs for breakfast, or maybe it was three loaves of bread, but it was, <laughs> it impressed it. Alvin. Yeah. And a lot of Alvin's stories have numbers in them. I've noticed. Yeah. A lot of his stories. And your dad had a saying about Alvin. What was it? Well, I had a heart to heart conversation with my dad on, in, uh, the end of 1997 Alvin had not been charged, but I was already rep I was already advising him. Yes. So he was not charged yet. So I wasn't representing him, but he was talking to me two days after his wife's death. And we would meet at the same intersection of sidewalk every day for three days yep. until we finally spoke. Yeah. And I didn't realize that was the day she was being buried. 
I also didn't realize that he was not taking my advice and he was talking to anybody who would talk to him, <laughs> including law enforcement. Absolutely. <laughs> and, but your dad would say he just thinks differently. Yeah. My dad, my dad did business with him. Uh, he, my dad was an incredible barterer and he had a grinder and, and he sharpened Alvin's lawnmower blades and, there, there's this wonderful, or there used to be, a wonderful economy out there yeah. of people that just traded. Yeah. And I, I hate to think that it's not with us as much anymore. Not but, as much. But, but, oh, gosh, we, we sometimes we, I, I continued the tradition in my dad's honor one time by doing an ag assault case where my fee was two Nubian goats. <laughs> <laughs> Best fee I ever got because they kept the children's play area mowed down so yeah. nicely. And oh uh, so oh I kind of got a bit of my dad in me. Sure. So Alvin, in reading the book, Alvin stalks you <laughs> in yeah. order to get your to, to defend and him. It at the, and at the same time, did not want to take my advice. Yeah. It, it just baffled me. You're the guy that met me on the same corner every day for three days. And we just, I've started realizing, okay, he doesn't want to make an appointment to the office, but he would call me at night screaming. Yeah. And I could hear cars whizzing by in the background. I'd say, where are you? He said, well, I'm at a payphone booth. And uh, so I, I made a deal with him. I said, Alvin, you know, by this time I am about to get married again. Uh, my, my fiance was there in the house and she was a little frightened. She was from Ringgold and she thought this guy sounds unhinged the way he's screaming at yeah. you. So I thought real quick and I said, you know, Alvin, from everything I've heard, you and your wife really enjoyed your privacy. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, look, you know, I have a future wife here that we really need our privacy. But I said, I'll make you a deal. You don't have to make an appointment. Anytime you want to come see me, just come to the office, and I'll stop what I'm doing, and I'll see you if I'm there. That worked. Yeah. That was our first great compromise that of many led to peace. <laughs> of yeah, many. Of many. <laughs> you have a difficult client with a difficult case because of his interaction with the community. There is a, a a belief about Alvin, and so you're up against that. What is your philosophy on being a defense attorney and, and taking on a case? What, what what do you what do you think about when you're when you're about to take a case on, especially with a difficult client? Well, thankfully, and I know you guys are of the same mind that I am. The every country that I know has a flag. Every country that I know has leaders. Every country has law enforcement. Right. Few have a constitution like ours. Correct. And that is the 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 game rules inside the monopoly box. It keeps everyone in check of who they are, what their role is, and what they can do in that role. And if a citizen knows enough to avail themselves of those rules, they're in a much better situation 
vis-a-vis the power imbalance of a government bearing down on you. Sure. A government with comparatively unlimited resources bearing down on an individual. So I I really am a strong believer in that. Uh, My parents both felt very strongly about how fairness and right, and that's the ultimate issue of fairness. We have rules, the Constitution, and if we apply them and you're convicted, then under our rules, you're convicted. You had your fair trial. Um, I I just, as, as humans, we all cut corners and there are there've been some rulings by the US Supreme Court that I years ago before I ever got to be a lawyer but that allow law enforcement to be deceptive right they allow them to outright lie correct uh to, in order to trip people up and while that's legal under the United States Supreme Court it just doesn't seem fair agree and so uh and so, uh, you know, that those are the kind of things that uh, I think are important. Yeah. And and that's how I justify even somebody that seems absolutely guilty. They still deserve the application of those rules to them. And if it doesn't work out for them, they had their fair shot. Yeah. Now, I think Alvin was a little bit more than just your typical. You actually called him your not your ideal client. <laughs> So you have a philosophy as a criminal defense attorney, but what was your philosophy of actually taking this case on? Because well, that's a huge well, undertaking. And remember, Alvin had a completely different constitution in his right? mind. Right? Back. <laughs> uh, yes. 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 <laughs> uh, Alvin had his own provisions of the U.S. Constitution that he very convincingly, I had to think really hard, is there a part of the Constitution <laughs> that says you don't have to go to court if you're not feeling well? Because that's what he keeps throwing at me. And... Uh, but but Alvin, I, I guess in a way, I was I, I got the hell beat out of me <laughs> in a congressional race. Yes. Uh by Congressman Nathan Deal. And um it was you know, I had been serving in the state legislature for four terms. I really enjoyed that type of work. I tried to do things even-handedly. I tried to never be overly partisan. Um, and yet, you know, this happened, and it was a it was a setback. It was a, a it was it was you know it hurt. And I had been kind of soft pedaling some cases. I would not take some cases over the years because I thought you know this can be a political hot potato and then all of a sudden i didn't care <laughs> and as a matter of fact the the angrier people got at me for helping that alvin ridley the more excited i got about okay. helping that alvin ridley because uh you know it, it just was something i i wanted to do it motivated me well we talked about neurodivergence and neurotypical but i think something else that i saw as a theme was imposter syndrome and I really saw that in the beginning for you. It was like you're oh, a 39-year-old brand-new attorney. You're like a new cult, <laughs> wiggling on those legs, you know, and here you are putting yourself back out there. Tell me how that felt. 
I now? developed a eye twitch and really? a, a lump rose up on my left forearm <laughs> that I did not know what it was. And I think it was total stress. Yeah. The things that struck me, your care for Alvin. Now, when you read the book, here are the things that I picked up on. One, you'd go get him. A lot of that was to ensure he came to court. There's that. You would feed him. You fed him, if I'm not mistaken, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken, whatever he wanted. And he would tell you. Famously Hardee's. Hardee's, yes, (laughs) Hardee's. For your steak dinner, you went to Hardee's. You, You loved him. And but, and it was and it's so evident and I want I want our listeners to understand this. Here's a guy that the community did not. They were afraid of him. They were agitated against him. He he w- had been difficult, and yet it is evident in the book that you loved him in a way that you wanted to take care of him. I, am I know, am I accurate in that? I, I, let me tell you. If you'd asked me then, I would have thought you were crazy. Right. Yeah. I think because you'd run screaming. <laughs> Alvin was driving me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He was driving everybody crazy. And uh, I, my father spoke highly of him. Yeah. I really wanted to be held in high esteem by my father. Yeah. And... When my father told me, you know, he's just different, that that gave me the inspiration to to keep on. But I also noticed how kindly my father treated him. Uh, at one point, I took him up just to see my dad, just to calm him down before the trial. And I realized, you know, I don't always treat him so kindly. <laughs> I'm always yelling at him and telling him and anticipating that he's going to be difficult and carrying around my paperback copy of the U.S. Constitution to throw at him. And now I think something in me realized that Alvin, everybody thought Alvin was a bit of a con man. When I finally got in his house, and I can thank my parents for that Mm -hmm. too, Yeah, but when I finally got in my house, I found basically 30 two years of Virginia's writings. A lot of them he had posted on the wall as a shrine to her. And when I said, I got to have this stuff, he said, absolutely not. And so I immediately had the challenge, but I was comfortable enough with him. I knew how transactional he was Mm -hmm. that I realized I can barter. I can, I can negotiate this, but I had to involve salesman Sam. Tell now, salesman, salesman, salesman Sam was a man named, his real name was Ben Benjamin Magaha. He lived in Tunnel Hill. Everybody knew him as Salesman Sam, and he rode a bicycle through town with catalogs in the basket. And he would stop at a store and try to sell them promotional items that he would just fill out a form and send in, and then you'd get your stickers or pens or pencils or like the political campaign material, that kind of stuff. He, he sold that as well. And, uh, he ended up at first being a state witness, 
where he apparently said certain things about that Alvin had told him or didn't tell him. Right. And that's the first time I saw in the early documents this Benjamin Magaha on an early report, and I thought, i got to find this person. Well, I had picked up a hitchhiker there on Alabama Road in Ringgold one day who reminded me so much of my grandmother. She was a very, very old lady, probably north of 80, who had a little cotton apron on just like my grandmother used to wear. And I ended up taking her to Hickson, Tennessee and giving her 20 bucks. Oh my gosh. And I thought I've been taken. (laughs) And I knew it the next day when I saw her in the exact same spot. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just went on by her. Well, I went looking for salesman Sam and knocked on a door of a trailer in Tunnel Hill. And that lady appears. She's salesman (laughs) Sam's mother. (laughs) And and I said, uh, I'm looking for Benjamin Magaha. She goes, oh, you know Sam. He's up at the library in Ringgold. You'll see his bicycle. And I thought, Sam? Ben? And she goes, yeah, Sam. And so I went to the library in Ringgold, and I see this bicycle, and I think, that's Salesman Sam's bicycle. Yeah. I walk into the library. He's sitting, studying intensely a book on the COBOL computer language. Oh, goodness. And we had already gone past COBOL at yeah. this point. But I introduced myself, and he goes, I know who you are. And, and I talked to him about, well, what are you doing? He goes, I'm writing a book. Of my life story. I'm figuring out these computers. <laughs> well, salesman Sam was the one person who called himself Alvin's legal advisor. It got us in so much trouble yeah. that I had to finally just put a stop to it. But at the same time, I felt like, okay, I need to do some business with salesman Sam because I need to kind of, bring him back into knowing that I'm not really mad at him. So I I bought a bunch of uh, ink pens, Bic pens with my (laughs) office name on it. And I said, here's salesman Sam, I'll even put your business name on it in smaller letters. So give you some advertisement out of this. I got the pens 25 years ago, dry as a bone. I don't know where he found dried up pens to have my name emblazoned on them. They're still dry as a bone. I'm giving them out to people, actually, uh, who like the case because I've got like 500 of them. There are so many characters so many. in this book. There's there's Team Alvin. Team Alvin is uh, the wonderful group of uh, women from the, uh, the shared office space that I share with Kevin Sylvie and Mike Giglio. And uh, they were their secretary, our high school runner, uh, and our former secretary, Benita, and my uh, then current secretary, Lori. And I realized early on representing Alvin how much calmer he was if there was a woman in the room. Yeah. That changed. It was almost as if he was raised to be always on his best behavior around women. And I thought that meant a lot vis a vis the case. Right. Uh, and he seemed to hold Virginia in that same regard of gentleness. And 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 so I made sure 
somebody was with us because he and I would scream at each other if it was just us in our office. And of course, that's when he started, you know, one of his rampages. And that's when I said, Oh Lord. And then silence. Uh He thought I was praying and he bowed his head like a child and clasped his hands. And I thought I can work with this. (laughs) Now he had a saying when he was upset with someone. Oh Lord. Yeah. And tell our listeners about that. Well, I started realizing the more Alvin would talk openly to me, he had a strange sense of justice. He would talk about these ancient battles, physical battles that he would have with people, stuff I did not want to get into a trial. Over a trash can. Uh, uh, Oh, just, they were, most of them when he was a boy. Yeah. Tadpole Byers, he stabbed him with a pin. Oh, no. Doc Stevenson had to pull it out of his bone, apparently. Hmm. Uh, because of somebody stole Alvin's hat, you know, and then the the incident with the later coroner Vanita Hollander mm-hmm. was uh, very telling because uh, he frightened her, mm-hmm. and I would imagine that would have been frightening. Yes, Alvin was raging over who's using the garbage can or her use of his garbage can, and he got after her with a broom, and she was. Truly horrified, I could tell. Yeah. Uh, and and was still horrified years later. Well, obviously, you know, I, I fear that that could have affected her views of the matter. Uh, but at the same time, I, I have to be generous to Vanita. She, she later became a wonderful coroner mm-hmm. for many years, yes. concentrating, and her daughter, Chastity, is the best thing that's happened in this circuit in terms of giving people a pre-trial way to get treatment for drug addiction, an alcohol addiction, to be tested, to show the DA and the judge that, you know, I'm doing well, I can be trusted. Um, And and I think Chastity gets that from her mom. Uh, Vanita really worked hard on uh she was the first person i ever heard about fentanyl from yeah and and because she was having to deal with these bodies she dealt with those overdoses yeah and so i have nothing but respect she'd only been a coroner what nine months nine months and i think this was her first death gosh and really and and there were some things that vanita did not do but but some of her staff did that were not good procedure uh such as plunging a needle into the neck of uh, virginia's body um when it was a death investigation right and but dr uh uh hellman uh the state pathologist he indicated that other than that there was nothing wrong with the neck it really uh, came down to the petechiae it really came down to that and i needed a death to show what an epilepsy death looks like. And you found one. And, Famous and one. It's yeah. sad, sad timing of, uh, you know, the death of the Olympic track star Florence Griffith Joyner yeah. in September of 1998. Yeah. Um, the autopsy came out the weekend of October 24th of 1998 
and I just happened to hear about it on CNN. I went and rifled through the newspapers for the last couple of days. And by Monday morning, I was talking California time. I was talking to the pathologist that, and, uh, and I had that autopsy and here was perhaps the most famous female athlete of the world. We knew the pressures were going to be that she was going to get a very extensive autopsy. Mm -hmm. And here's the least known perhaps woman in the world who, you know, just seemed to be processed fairly quickly. Sure. Um, I've spoken to Dr. Hellman since, and we had a very good conversation uh, just, just this year. And it's the first time we've spoken in 25 years. And, and he said, you know, I I really wish, uh, I had not considered or known about the rumors about your client in that community. And I thought that was very big of him. That's now, let interesting. Me, now, let me tell you what he, he went on to do. He went on to lead the investigation of the Shanksville, Pennsylvania 9-11 plane. Oh, my. He was in charge of that. Wow. And had to deal with all of that. Yeah. And, and recover bodies and identify. And he also won accolades for how in his community in Pennsylvania – he uh, led the uh, COVID-19 matters, which, again, everybody in this case went on to shine in in their fields. Sure. And Buzz. Yes. You know. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the prosecutor at the time. Yeah, the yeah. DA, was, who we all know very well. Was, was uh, went on to have a great career as DA. Uh, Officer Gass became our chief magistrate judge. Did. Very well liked and very fair. Uh, Vanita is a commissioner. Vanita is a county commissioner and, and does a good job. Um, I tease her and tell her that uh, everybody from Graysville has a chip on their shoulder. So, <laughs> so uh, and, know, including myself. For us, we know the vast majority of the characters involved in this, and but some of our listeners may not. And... Here's, I want to I want to talk about your book for a second. I'm so glad that I got to read it prior to our interview. Because you did a marvelous job. Thank you. The courtroom scenes are fantastic and very detailed. They're they are they're detailed, but you don't get into the minutia of legalese. But you give the detail that you can almost feel like you're there. I thought you did a great job. With well. That. Much of this, this isn't cheating, <laughs> but much of the transcript was used. Yeah. I didn't want to put words into people's mouths when they're under oath. Yeah. So I used their actual words. Now, I didn't may not have used their entire testimony because the book would have been, as I first turned it in, twice as long. <laughs> and and so, you know, I really had to cut what are the salient points that need to be brought up to help explain the story as we progress. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I guess I have never, I never was a law student that was, uh, the type who could get too deep in the minutia of law Yeah. or, and, and, and I do know that people 
Luke can get lost in that. But I think Buzz and Judge Van Pelt equally deserve credit for keeping it uh, very understandable. Yeah. Uh, it was it was wonderful the way you told the story because you could see it progressing. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of parts that I want to talk about. There are a couple of parts that I felt like turned the case. One was the recorder. Tell our listeners about that. Well, I had... Uh, early on just done some telephone interviews with a couple of the first responders and I took very detailed notes of what they were telling me and this was this was uh, after Alvin had been charged but before it got too crazy before the tabloid headline sicko Hull's wife captive 30 years then kills her and they just seemed to this was before the internet well not quite before the internet but it was before the internet is what it is today um the internet kind of got us in trouble on this case actually (laughs) um but it just seemed that by the time it got to trial these witnesses were being influenced by going along and getting along. You know, we want to we want to bend our testimony maybe a little and I think we're all guilty of that. We we're influenced by what others around us are saying. We're influenced by the team effort to get this guy convicted. But their testimony at the trial seemed to be going a little more toward Alvin's behavior indicated guilt. Mhm. And so I had a little pocket recorder and I had wished I had recorded them in their phone calls. But then I thought they don't know I didn't record them in their phone calls. <laughs> so I'm just going to play with this recorder in my hand while I'm asking them these questions. <laughs> and I would really play with it when I would say, well, didn't you tell me on October 12th, uh, that so-and-so, they would look at the recorder and look at me, and they would say, well, well yes, I did say that. And, it, you know, they got right back in line of what my notes said. Right. I didn't make them say anything they didn't say before. And and I'd never, I don't know what I did to come up with that, but uh, I, it it worked in that instance. Yeah. And Next, I, go ahead. I think Alex. Mark thinks that that's a turning point, but I think the ring was a turning point. Uh, it was. Yeah. The ring was an interesting situation um, in that, um, again, a relatively new administration in the coroner's office. Um, our theory was there was a watch missing. From Virginia's. From watch. Virginia's. There was a small red circular mark, just a single mark in the fatter part of the forearm, the left forearm, that the state was trying to indicate that's that's a ligature. Well, first place, you would not tie somebody up on the fat part of their forearm because they would just slip out of it. And if it was in the fat enough part of it, you could get your whole hand through. So obviously during seizure the pressing face down of the seizure. My theory was the watch got 
pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until it was either popped off or they removed it. Well, everybody was saying uh, up to that point through inquiry, informal inquiry, and then asking not the coroner but another witness in a previous hearing that there was no jewelry. And so that was baffling because Alvin was upset that she was buried without a ring that she never took off, he said. And so to her credit, Vanita called me one day and said, guess what I found in the desk drawer? And it's Virginia Ridley's ring. And I thought, hallelujah. Yeah. For one thing is that Alvin gets the ring back at some point. Mm -hmm. But secondly, it helped my theory that there was a watch as well. Yeah. And it just went somewhere else. Did you ever find the watch? Never was found. Um. But let me tell you, in Alvin's house, it could be anywhere. It could be anywhere. <laughs> it could but be. Alvin, Alvin said she wore. A he small, said she wore a watch. delicate watch. Yeah, and and so you know, it, it really. I thought, you know, I really want to make this point, and I I would never put this ring into evidence because then he'd never get it. Right. So I'm just going to show it to her, and just to make a point, here's a physical object that we're talking about. And then I've got through and I went over and handed it to Alvin. I did not expect, and I will put my hand on a Bible. <laughs> I did not expect Alvin's reaction. Which was? Which was he was destroyed yeah. with emotion. Yeah. And the interesting thing that we now know about Alvin and autism is that the emotions are out of sync with what us neurotypical people feel they should be. But the autistic person can also just absorb the emotion in a room from other people or other events. And then it just cascades down upon them at some point. For example, I, you know, my parents died after illnesses. Alvin cried harder than I did. Yeah. Um, but he also knew that my parents probably got him acquitted with that turkey plate they sent yeah. to him. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I don't know. It it just seems I was not expecting because I guess I was expecting him to be as flat as he usually is. But man, those emotions came in, which of course really unnerved uh, Buzz, the DA, and he rightfully complained because it was quite a show of emotion. And that's when I said to the judge, okay, well, I'll just take it back. And judge Van Pelt said, Oh no, <laughs> don't do that. It'll be worse. Well, the jury got to see emotion out of Alvin. They personalized him. Yeah. And yet, uh, again, um, classic Alvin mode. If you talk about the trial today, it was not me that won that case. It was those real tears that he had. <laughs> He'll tell you that today. Well, they liked him. <laughs> yeah. And they liked him. And yeah. one of and I was gonna say that is that rolls into Alvin's thinking is that when he has a good encounter with someone like your dad, yeah, he would say the phrase They like they like me. They like me. Yeah. And talk about picking a jury with a guy who his only like his only you know, lodestar is they like me. Yeah. You know, and, and it did when picking the jury, it did uh 
calm him down when I ask, how many people ever got their TV fixed by Alvin Ridley? Well, he's almost become a legend yeah. in that regard because he was so good. I've heard people tell me since, you know, he fixed our TV with a copper cent. He just like <laughs> stuck it in a part of the TV and it, it's worked forever for years. And, and so he had a knack. And in sense, it's even grown. I think that people are saying he fixed their TV that they they yeah. weren't even alive when yeah. when he was in business. But I love it for him, yeah, because that's what he wants to be remembered as. Yeah, yeah. And going back to his wife, I think you really personalized her too, because she was this absent figure that was never there. She personalized herself. And that was with hypergraphia. Yeah. Right? I learned a lot of terms. I, I learned, I knew nothing about hypergraphia. I just knew I had this strange deceased woman who, as I, when Dr. Wanamaker at dinner, the night before I put him on the stand, just happened to ask one last question. That's awesome. Was there anything else unusual about this woman? And I thought, now that you mention it. You know, it, she she couldn't do anything without noting it. And he just calmly said, well, that's hypergraphia. A lot of my temporal lobe epilepsy wow. patients have that. And he said it doesn't affect what they write, but it compels them to write it. He said he has clients that will bring in just journals of the last three months since he saw them, wanting him to read them. And he's going like, you know, that's okay, but... <laughs> But he said, but they're true representations of their lives. There was a famous case um, out of a uh, a man that I think was from Atlanta but lived in New York. And he constantly wrote, but he was well-to-do. And they published them. It's called the Inman Diaries. And when I learned about it, he was the most famous hypergraphic person until Virginia Ridley. And I found an old set of the Inman Diaries, and I bought them. They're bound. They're the most boring recitations of (laughs) this rich guy's life a hundred years ago. And but I think it's really interesting because Alvin and Virginia lived on Inman Street in Ringgold. Yeah, they did. It's just one of those weird coincidences. What's happened to her writings? They were in pretty bad shape when I found them. Okay. There were silverfish. Yes. There were mice making nests. Um, I wish that they had been preserved, but Alvin wanted them back. There were a few that uh, were utilized for the TV and uh, TV shows that Alvin let me preserve by framing their own display at caffeine addicts in Ringgold, which used to be Alvin Ridley's TV. Yeah. I've got a a, a wall there. That's kind of a shrine to him of all the newspaper articles. And, uh, so it's, uh, it's something, it's something funny. You said, Mark, well, you know, I do love Alvin as a, as a, as a brother. Um, I feel like he's one of these guys you go to battle with yeah, and you come out of the war and you're forever bonded to this guy. And in fact, I believe you still eat lunch with him twice a week, religiously (laughs) Mondays and Thursdays. Is that right? Absolutely. And you cannot throw a 
someone on the spectrum off. No. <laughs> uh, and and uh, so, you know, I try my best to be there. If I can't make it, my secretary, Carlene, will take him. Yeah. She is wonderful, let me tell you. She, she used to work um, at Lookout Mountain Community Services yeah. with uh, developmentally disabled people. She is the absolute best and helps me take care of Alvin. We get him, we tag team to get him to the VA for his appointments. He drives, but, uh, you know, we try to get him there on time. And um, it's just, uh, I guess I'm honoring my father by continuing to help Alvin. Because my father was very uh, concerned about Alvin. Yeah. Now, going off that fight comment, my favorite quote is on page 100, and it's after dinner with Dr. Wanaker. Wanamaker. 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 Sorry, see. Braxton Bryant Wanamaker. Yeah. <laughs> That's a name. I That's love a that. name. But your, co- your quote was, there is a fight here. All we must do is show up and fight. Yeah. It's very David and Goliath. And the fear that David was not going to show up <laughs> was always on my mind. <laughs> David being Alvin. Yes. And, and, you know, you read about how he didn't show up yeah. on a critical day. And I, th- I think I first thought Judge Van Pelt was being kind. Now I realize Judge Van Pelt didn't want the appeals right. of dismissing 44 motions. No. And so he allowed me to go get him, and that was the day of the giant spider bite. Yes. And, and so uh, – and then, you know, I tried again to keep – him from having to come to court. And that of course made Alvin suspect why doesn't he want me in court? And so he showed up on time dutifully when he thought I didn't want him there. You know, the thing about this book is the development of all of the characters in this. You see Alvin's development with you because he runs away. He ran to Rome. He ran to the hospital. (laughs) He did, you know, different things. But as the trial continued, now how long did it go on? A week, a week and a day. So as it went along, from a reader's perspective, you see Alvin's development. You see the development of the different witnesses for the state. Yeah. But there's just one more question that, that I want to ask. Tell me what it did for you. Because I saw it, but I want to hear it from you. What did this... It gave me a second act, and maybe now a third. Yeah, uh, because I've really enjoyed writing, yeah. and uh, and I hope uh, I hope to do it again. Uh, my publisher wants me to take another shot at it, but I'm I'm wanting to get this ship launched first. <laughs> and uh, but Alvin did a lot for me, and I, it taught me the value of unanswered prayers. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be in Congress. I did not get to go to Congress, and it wasn't even close, which kept me from trying again. And because of that, I became in the position by remarrying and our in vitro fertilization attempts not working, another unanswered prayer. It put me in the position of going to the Republic of Kazakhstan and meeting my daughter and my son, and then six years later, meeting my other son. That 
those children were going to be there. It it wasn't a matter of timing of when I did anything. It put me on the track to be there yeah. when they were available and they came and have been the joys, absolute joys of my life. If if anything, I worked out a lot of demons from uh, with my youngest child. He went to school where they had a chapel service every morning, and I went every day for seven years. And these parents would say, gosh, you're here all the time. And I would say, it's from a very dark place. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I grew up with a wonderful father, but who suffered from alcoholism. And never was mean to our mother or us. I have five older sisters. Um, we're such a vast spectrum of age that really the, the older three had a different dad than the last three of us because of the years of alcohol. And so he was a wonderful person, but just sad. And... But he also had a tough life. He he grew up in the Depression. His closest brother uh, died of lockjaw mm. at 13 when my dad was 10. Um, my grandmother was a wonderful person, but she was a teetotaler. And you know what happens when yes. there's it's forbidden. Yes, those boys are going to find it somewhere. Yeah. And 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 then life always. Uh, Again, he, he provided for us so well, and they grew a garden. We mostly ate what came right off of the hill in Graysville. But there was a sadness to him, and when you're a child and you can't find the capacity to hate someone, like if they're beating you or yelling at you or anything like that, you, you turn it internally. So I was constantly trying to figure out, well, what about what am I doing? Why why does he feel the need to drink? And I, that has it's helped me understand children. I've been the part time juvenile court judge for twenty seven years, right. and it really helps me connect with these children of addiction and families with addiction. And I know that kid's just me, you know. Yeah. That kid is uh, that. You know, I'm not going to judge this family. That that parent is trying, but they're struggling with chemicals and chemical addiction. And so, uh, uh, in a, in a way, the fact that I could, and and we institutionalized or hospitalized my father in the in this case during this case. Yeah, and that's where he and I uh, had the best conversations about Alvin. And this was a very successful intervention many of them are not right my dad lived 10 years mostly sober yeah and that was a gift and um so i yeah when he showed up at trial i was not sure who was going to be in that room i wasn't sure i thought i'm a little rusty here i can't tell if he needs to be here or not and uh but alvin was very happy that he was there because he likes it. Because he likes yeah, it. he likes me. I saw the development of all these characters in you. And I have to tell the listeners I cried at the end of the book. 
Well, that's we an honor, Mark, because I know Mark is I, one tough son of a bitch. <laughs> I can be, and and I, I I love this book. I want our listeners to read this book because I know they'll love it. Thank you. You did a great job. It tells a fantastic story. We're so proud of you, and uh, I just I just hope everybody just just feels the same way that I do well, about it. Well, I'm so honored first to be your first interview thank you i'm so excited about this medium i've I've got about 20 more lined up over through march and um just to do it with friends is very special but um the fact that you liked the book that that is of such a redeeming quality (laughs) in and of itself because you know i i put a lot of people through a lot of hell trying to write it yeah, (laughs) and a lot of frustration, but I'm willing to tell anybody that we all have stories in us and I would like to encourage everybody to get those stories down, whether they're published by a publisher or self-published or just recorded into a, a pocket recorder that actually is functioning. Yeah. Uh, and uh, those those kind of things, you need to preserve them for your family, if nothing else. I mainly wrote this book realizing that I'm 64 and I'm putting out my first book, that I would love for my children, who I know, my grandchildren, who I may not know, to know who I was. Yeah. And, and so, and, and, and know the things that made life the way it was and know that the wonderful things that can happen when you don't, things don't turn out like you want them to. Yeah. Yeah. I think this book resonates with lawyers and it should. And I think a lot, a lot more lawyers, even our lookout mountain bar (laughs) should read it. And there's a lot of firsts. I, you were my first judge that I appeared before oh, as a solo wow. attorney. Oh at wow! DA's well, you were great. Oh, you, you you were you were you know the thing about juvenile court is you got to have a heart even as a prosecutor. You got to have a heart, and you, you can see your heart in this book. And you did, and you yeah, had sure. it in juvenile court too. So, well, you don't know how much I appreciate. It. Of course, book sales are important because. And and this is going to go on after this is going to be aired after the book is out. But I've learned enough about publishing that the reason I'm working so hard in pre-sales is that pre-sales inform the publisher, hey, this thing's got some kick to it. Yeah, got some feet. we're we're going to yeah, got some feet. Mm-hmm. We're going to up the print run yeah. a little bit, yeah. and thankfully. That has happened. They should. They and, should. And they, I've gotten uh, good reviews on Goodreads. I would invite you both Absolutely. to go to Amazon Goodreads yep. and please review the book. Yeah. The publisher sent it off to six people. I reviewed my own book because nobody had before, and I thought <laughs> I'm giving myself five stars in case nobody else does. I got one. I'm the one person I know that has read this book, and so, but I got a. Uh, Five more five stars. Okay. And then I got a three star. Okay. And oddly enough, the lady said, uh, and these are people who they get a free copy through NetGalley with the understanding that they're going to get of an honest review. And she gave a very honest review. She said she really enjoyed the parts about Alvin, not so much the part about the author. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
That's one person's opinion. So I'm really glad that y'all, uh, you we, took it another way. We did. <laughs> well, we're so thankful for you to be here on our podcast, especially the first episode, our first interview. We thank you so much. And, uh, we hope we can bring well, you back again. And I, and I, yes. And I want to wish you success thank because you. this is such an exciting medium. It is. It really is fantastic. And people can, and you know, I'm hooked. I'm listening to them all the time. I went to a true crime convention in Dallas in October just to meet people who do what you do now. And I think you ought to go or take turns going. Uh, We've, we've talked about doing just that. We're, we're new into this world and we couldn't have started out better. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much. Thanks Alex. Thanks. Well, I enjoyed that. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Uh, I love Ken. He's such a good guy. And uh, we've known him, both of them known him for a long, long time. And and the book was fabulous, as I said, throughout the show. And we're not just blowing smoke up his skirt. I mean, definitely. No. I know I was deeply affected by the neurodivergent character. Yeah. Because I know my personal life, I have a neurodivergent family member. And, you know, seeing someone advocating so strongly and so passionately when he really didn't have to. Yeah. But what could have been so different? It could have gone s- such a different direction if he hadn't had such a passionate attorney. Agree. You know, what's interesting to me is that uh, Alvin was neurodivergent back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, where they didn't have a lot of knowledge right. about that. But the thing that doesn't change from then to now is, and, and I have a son also that's neurodivergent, that the thing I learned through his journey was that you have to be an advocate. Every As day. a parent, you have to be an advocate because nobody else is. There's nobody else that's going to do that. Yeah. No. Yeah, it, uh, it was touching. I thought it was he, he did a great job. Um, you got a different view of Alvin throughout the book. And and, uh, and to know that he still has that relationship with him. Isn't that cool? Oh, I thought that was just precious because they still see each other. Yeah. What? At least once a week. Yeah, at least once and a week. And if he can't make the appointment, one of his staff does. So... You know, Alvin still has an advocate that works with him every week. Yeah. You know, he's always doing something for him, and he's been set up in a really nice way. He has. And there's nobody else there for him, really, no family member. So it's, he's lucky. Isn't it amazing that because Alvin stalked Ken, <laughs> to this day it still affects. Yes. Because Alvin took that. He didn't know what else to do, but he knew if I could get in front of him. He focused on one thing, focused on just one like thing. neurodivergent yeah. does, right? <laughs> but it still affects him today. Yeah. What a great show. What a great guest and a great book. Um, And we hope you all will read this book, look at it, especially attorneys, lawyers, and also just think about what it means to be an advocate for your family member like that. Yeah. Well, we've got more shows coming. Um, We're excited to to get this one uh, done and in the can, as they say. And, uh, you know, we'll have another one in a few weeks. If you have any questions or any comments about this book or what you've heard, Please reach out to us at our website, which is just the number one morequestion.com. And we look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. There you go. All right. Bye, Alex. Bye, Mark. <laughs> if you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send us your questions about the books or cases we profile. Tweet them to at just one, the number, more pod with the hashtag questions. Or you can send an email 
to just one, the number, morequestionpod at gmail.com. The executive producers of Just One More Question are Mark Veazey and Alex Litz. Our assistant producer is Casey High. Our music is by Desane. We are your hosts, Mark Veazey and Alex Litz. And this has been Just One More Question. <laughs>